This is the Good Fire Podcast. Stories of Indigenous fire stewardship, cultural empowerment, and environmental integrity. Hey everybody, welcome to Good Fire. My name is Matthew Kristoff. And I'm Amy Cardinal Christensen, and we're here to share stories of Indigenous fire stewardship. So over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking with Indigenous researchers and Indigenous fire practitioners about what they're doing and how they're trying to get Indigenous burning back on the land. So this podcast is sponsored by the Canadian Partnership for Wildland Fire Science with support from the California Indian Water Commission and the Fire Sticks Alliance Indigenous Corporation. So on today's episode, we're going to talk to Frank Lake from the U.S. Forest Service, who's also an Indigenous man. Um, and he's going to talk about the power struggle that we're seeing between, you know, agencies and uh, Indigenous-led wildfire management. Frank, do you want to uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, hello, and thanks for having me. My name is Frank Kanawa Lake. I'm a research ecologist with the USDA Forest Service, Pacific Southwest Research Station, and the Fire and Fuels Program. And I've been with the agency in the research branch for about 18 years. And prior to that, I was a habitat fish biologist on the management side. And a lot of my work and my research um, working with indigenous and tribal peoples is informed and influenced by my cultural background. I'm mixed blood Native American and white, but primarily raised with the cultural influences in the, in the tribes in Northwest California, that being my Yurok and Karuk families. That's awesome. That's, I think that's the best introduction we've had so far. Yeah, it's very concise. Yeah, you, you win. <laughs> yeah, you, you nailed it. <laughs> so, Frank, I just wanted to give some additional background here. Like, I know everyone in the world of Indigenous fire stewardship knows you, but just for people outside, you know, listening in, um, for me, you've been a tremendous mentor and, uh, you know, role model um, in, in my career. And so when I initially started in this, you know, I held a, um, a meeting at a conference in San Antonio uh, about Indigenous fire, and only one person showed up, I remember, and it was Carol Raish, so I felt very alone. But then the next conference I went to, you actually hosted a workshop on Indigenous fire. And um, I know you've been in North America in this um, area a lot longer than a lot of other people. You know, it's a bit popular now, but, you know, back in the hard days, I know you were really pushing for um, Indigenous people to get back on the land and get burning so I was wondering if you could just maybe give some background context. You know, what led you to do that um, workshop that you did? I think it was in Montana, right? Yep, it was uh, one of the large fire conferences there by the International Association of Wildland Fire. Okay, yeah. So what made you, like, you know, decide to host kind of a gathering like that? Like, did you see a need, um, you know, in the U.S. fire management community for having, you know, Indigenous people back out on the land? You know, I have to really give credit to my mentors, and I think academically and culturally, um, one of those women is uh, Dr. Robin Kimmer. When I was a graduate student at Oregon State University back in 2000, she was invited to write an article from Journal Forestry, and her and I co-published Maintaining the Mosaics. And I think at that time, as a young graduate student, again, transitioning from the, the aspect of fisheries habitat work. I was beginning to understand if I was going to restore salmon in our watersheds, I'd have to understand fire. And to understand the fire, I'd have to understand the cultural and ecological aspects of fire in the, in the Klamath Mountains in Northern California. And that led me on that journey of my academic pursuit to get my graduate degree. And from there, that whole time, it was really how do we increase the awareness and the understanding of the importance of fire, both ecologically, but in particularly the cultural importance 
to many of the tribes or indigenous people in the Pacific West. And so Robin was really instrumental in helping me start that, um, I guess, as an integration of my cultural and professional or academic interest. And then from there, I continued to do oral history interviews and work with the tribes and really pursue um, what I saw was kind of the information gap between academics, wildland fire managers, and then what I was hearing from working with cultural practitioners, particularly a lot of the elders, um, women, and on the basketry and nutritional foods or first foods. And so moving that forward to this workshop, that came um, about really in working with people like Vita Wright at the Rocky Mountain Research Station and others as part of that team and saying, you know, what is it that tribes need? Uh, what is it that the wildland fire managers need? What is it that fire scientists or researchers need? And so we convened that workshop to try to bring about those issues and, and, and address some of those topics. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, you wrote uh, a very good paper from um, that one, too, that I mean, a lot of people have referenced, I think, um, as well. Can you just give maybe that the title of that paper and where it's published so that people can look it up? Yeah, so it's the um, the article is called "Returning Fire to the Land: Celebrating Traditional Knowledge and Fire," and it was the Journal of Forestry, Volume One Fifteen, Number Five, and it was part of a special issue there on on tribal forestry and fire. And I was really grateful to my team that was Vita Wright and uh, Penny Morgan, Mary McFadden's, David Wheat, and Camille Steen's uh, Ruin. And as together, we each kind of came from our own work of um, fire science and working with tribes, uh, particularly the Salish Kootenai uh, tribe was the, the host of that first workshop we had. And then that went into the developing the second workshop we had at the large fire conference. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like uh, so previous to, to this article and this kind of research, you might have been the one to kind of break this into the modern scientific scene, right? It sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of modern science being done around this subject right so it sounds yeah. like you, you had a big impact on you know making the broader you know society around you aware of this you know these kind of issues yeah I think what Frank did like for me that was inspirational was that they you know there was a lot of cultural burners who were kind of behind the scenes but Frank was kind of the first one you know indigenous person yeah. to get a PhD kind of in this topic and then really you know get a job with the US Forest Service and bring it to the the forefront kind of with um you know working with the, the current management agency instead of just like lots of indigenous people you know we'll just kind of hide in our traditional territory and you know burn and try and get around regulations but i think frank you definitely tried to add a lot of um, profile to cultural burning which has been great I, I think another influence there was i kept up my wildland fire um firefighter type 2 qualifications through the national wildfire coordinating group and meeting that but then i had my resource advisor qualifications and so as a fire line read or an arduous qualified individual, I often worked with the local national forest when they had fires here and in the local tribes. And I was really kind of a, a, a resource advisor liaison between the agency archaeologists and cultural resource specialists and then the heritage consultants and the tribal leadership when we started to have larger, more complex fires and working with the incident management teams. And that kind of more on the ground mm -hmm applying my local cultural knowledge, but my academic and my professional training and bringing that intersection of here's where I'm from as a community. Here's how we have this kind of fire management agency framework. 
how can we be more effective in really understanding what the issues are, um, both through policy, through the applications of, um, at, at the time, working more with the wildland fire decision support system to identify what are those culturally significant values at risk, particularly around heritage and cultural resources. And then that applied work on the ground through many of the um, culturally significant areas and areas of um, here in the Klamis helped begin to inform, like this isn't in the, re- this isn't in the literature. These are things that unless you're actually boots on the ground and feeling the heat of the flame, you're not going to understand that. And so that was one aspect of me wanting to write both in the kind of the fire management journals, but also um, really at the academic level to begin to, to narrow that gap and to have an increase in understanding from all different perspectives that I could. That's awesome. So, Frank, I'm wondering if you two can just give us an overview of how your tribe uses fire just for people, you know, that might not be aware. Um, I know, you know, that in the Klamath there, there are some really kind of interesting um, techniques, like even for um, acorns and you were saying like basket weaving and and salmon that, um, that, you know, people might not think are related to fire. But I think, you know, that your tribe has shown that they actually are quite intimately related. Something I framed just in the last year was what is a fire dependent culture? And for me growing up, so many aspects of the subsistence activities, the foods, the basket material, even linking to the ceremonies was around this perspective of fire stewardship and use. And understanding that, I began to try to think, well, how do fire scientists look at operational fire use and, and prescribed burning? And how does that relate to cultural burning? And, and more importantly, as a fire dependent culture, what are the ways that fire was used historically? What are the modern applications that both can benefit indigenous people or tribes and the p- local public or society? And so for, for, for me in framing it that way, there's the important aspects of, well, you have the natural lightning fire regime, but then this cultural fire regime is really the more sophisticated and deeper understanding culturally and using fire that would increase the frequency, diversify the seasonality, and increase the specificity of burning on the landscape to promote those desired fire effects. And some of those desired fire effects would be promoting the kinds of conditions in that culturally valued habitat and focusing on particular resources like which shrubs are used for basket material and which trees or other plants are used for important nuts or foods like acorns and pine nuts and then the whole range of the berries and even down to understanding which medicinal plants um, require fire to one have the the nutritional and mineral and vitamin and the other healthy aspects of them that we learn from elders about those are good food um, especially when they're burned and cared for and then bringing that together so for me that was the uniqueness was looking at kind of those, what are the cultural objectives and what are the other influences of that cultural fire regime on these landscapes? And I really tried to frame and articulate that because I think academically, there was always this notion of a natural fire regime, which I think marginalized or often didn't provide the credibility and the depth and complexity of indigenous burning and indigenous fire knowledge. And that's what I tried to bring out and relate. That's awesome. It sounds like you've really thought about like the full range of perspectives that are going on and really tried to bring them together, which I think is a super difficult task to do. I mean, I haven't done it myself, but it sure (laughs) seems like from all the conversations we've had over the course of these episodes is that 
the commonality is that complicated process between relating, you know, indigenous knowledge and indigenous fire practices with modern scientific method and trying to get them to work together and to, and, you know, work together towards a common goal, right. Or, or, or helping everyone else. So it's, it's, it's awesome to hear that you've actually managed to pull that off somehow. Yeah. <laughs> you got a magic wand you can pass around to everybody else. This notion of kind of the pristine myth, uh, you know, the, the myth of the pristine wilderness and that this ecological diversity was just inherently there when really a lot of our forest and our fire prone ecosystems where there's indigenous people are the legacy of that complex indigenous fire stewardship. And yes, mm-hmm. lightning is frequent, but when you start to look at the, the various applications for food, for basketry, for travel routes, for working on reducing fuel loading around the villages or wildland urban interface, as we call it now, and then the connection between the home place to the resource areas to even our more biologically diverse sacred sites and other areas across the landscape, it was that intentional burning that facilitated that diversity or what we're calling now heterogeneity and biodiversity. And when we think about vulnerabilities or the threats and stressors of climatic or other environmental processes, I began to understand as I kind of looked at it at different scales, kind of in my Western framework and then cross-checking that with my indigenous perspective or um, experience was there's a depth there that isn't being revealed or shared, but how do we do that in a respectful way that this isn't extracting that indigenous knowledge, but helping Mm. indigenous people and those tribal communities and families uh, feel that they can have a a, a voice and a place to relate the way that fire is important to them, but then just not relinquish that knowledge so much and have it kind of taken and then applied by another entity like a federal government or an organization but really developing the partnerships. And I think the elders I worked with, particularly the basket weavers and the ladies were like, this is our indigenous fire use sovereignty. And we have to work with, you know, essentially the the colonizers or the people that are now sharing this landscape with us to learn how to live with fire. And Mm -hmm. if we see fire as medicine, as something that's essential and healthy to our landscapes, to our watersheds, to our own being as human beings, then that's where we have the alignment of the intersection between people and place, particularly as, as around the use of fire and understanding the benefits of fire, as well as some of the consequences of, of not having fire in a landscape and what it may take to reintroduce that. Interesting. Yeah, I think I've expressed to Frank, too, my concern, you know, in Canada, what I see a lot of in other places, too, is, you know, that there's now this huge interest in indigenous fire stewardship, but I find lots of agencies almost kind of want to to take or extract that knowledge from our our nations and then like, you know, kind of applied in that colonial setting. So I, a while ago, had brought up to Frank my concern with that, like, you know, should we share with like the, the colonizer or, you know, should we keep it private where, you know, we're just focused on our traditional lands. And I think, you know, Frank, um, you know, had good advice that, you know, indigenous people for in order for this to work, because it's a cultural, like it's a cultural burning, right? So you have to have indigenous people there to make mm-hmm. it work with, with the knowledge. And yeah, yeah, it's a to me, it's an, an easy partnership for agencies to make, you know, it does involve giving up some power. But at the same time, if you know, you're getting to the ultimate end goal, does it really matter? <laughs> well, I think being on the outside of this and never having yeah. dealt with 
you know any of these problems before ever (laughs) but listening to these conversations it seems like I, i could totally see how agencies and governments could be on board with the environmental importance of of indigenous burning view back on the landscape right yeah. i think they get on board with the with the environmental side of it yeah. and i think a lot of times from what i've heard it sounds like the cultural aspect is often lost yeah and they're not so they're 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 just missing that they think that they're like yeah we're doing it we're letting them do it we're letting them blah 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 like letting them you know what i mean yeah. it's that kind of yep. thought process um whereas and i think i don't think it's intentional but they it's just being lost it's going over their head for whatever reason right so like i think mm-hmm. so how do you how do you instill the fact that it's like, no, this is something that like we would like to do together with you, mm-hmm. but also you, yeah, like you said, you don't want that knowledge to be extracted and taken from you. You want to, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Utilize it together and, and, and try and achieve a common goal. Right? Yeah. It's a big worry for me, especially yeah. like I see now a lot of research projects that are interested in, I don't know what you're seeing down there in California, Frank, but you know, this is getting more popular and there's a lot of non-Indigenous people who want to work in this in this field, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like how do we protect our communities and, and knowledge, but then at the same time, you know, work with who is the ultimate fire manager on, on the landscape? And it could be, it could be both, right? Like it doesn't mean, but yeah, you ultimately, yeah. we need to, we can't have two organizations working against each other to try and achieve different things, right? So ultimately, we need to work together. So building that partnership, what what does that look like? What does that partnership look like, do you think? Yeah, right? yeah. What What's the power struggle like down there? <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. And, you know, one of the things that came out of the article um, was we really highlighted from the tribes and, and other cultural practitioners was the need for cross-jurisdictional work and particularly that emphasis on the cultural resources. And so looking, the Forest Service has the all-land, all-hands kind of approach, you know, Yes, there's this federal land base, and then there's state or private or even indigenous or tribal lands. But when you look at fire as a landscape process, and with that as a cultural practice, it's going across those land those those land ownership boundaries. And for some of the tribes here in California, some have reservations or reserves that you would you know say if they're in Canada, but others don't. And so a large part of their ancestral territory may be in public lands or federal lands here in the states. And so how do they work with that federal entity, whether it's the National Park Service or the Forest Service? Um, and then on the other side, there might be commercial uh, forestry lands that are private timber lands that are still within their ancestral territory. And that landowner has a different management objective for fire and for forestry applications. And so I think my work with the tribe, some that are have their own reservation, some that have a fragmented reservation or um, different land holdings within the reservation boundary and in a tribe such as the Karuk that has a large portion of their ancestral territory uh, being in the, the federal or the national forest, each of them have to work in, in various degrees to to reinstate the cultural practice of, of, of fire use. Um, and then also more importantly, when there is the wildfire side of it, unplanned ignition that may be um, burning in conditions that aren't desirable or maybe threatening life and property and the edge of a community Having those fire management agreements in place, that's one thing I learned that the tribes have with the National Forest here is that an official administrative agreement um, for working on fires. And then that helps support the opportunity for inclusion. And in here, uh, the Forest Service has a, a federal consultation mandate where they need to consult and coordinate and communicate effectively with the tribes about any proposed actions whether it's a planned project like for hazardous fuels reduction or, or fire risk mitigation um, or even in prescribed burning. But then on the wildfire side of it, 
how they work together to alleviate conflict and then find solutions to the management to achieve objectives on that fire. So do you see something like here in Canada, I know, or at least in Alberta, uh, the last 10 or 20 years, there's been a lot of kind of roundtable discussions. So there's been a lot of uh, councils kind of put together made up of different stakeholders, right? And they've managed to have, although at the very beginning, a lot of difficulty managing that and getting everybody's voice heard and, and having respect around the table. Over time, they like successfully regarding grizzly bears and trumpeter swans and different wildlife, or different wildlife out there. That's that that's of concern. They've over time they've actually succeeded in accomplishing, you know, common goals and 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 trying to work in a unified direction. Um, so, do you see something like that working out? Yeah, it started in particular with the um, national fire plan in early two thousand here in the United States. That kicked off a lot of funding to develop fire safe councils. And so these were more community-based organizations. In particular, the Fire Safe Council, the Orleans Homes Bar Fire Safe Council that I was working with, worked with the Karuk Indigenous Basket Weavers, and they were starting on willing and uh, private landowners who wanted to see fields reduction and reintroduce fire there. As that process began to gain interest in part of this federal consultation requirement for doing work on federal lands, a lot of times I saw tribes were a little reluctant or hesitant to share sensitive information or certain perspectives in a public setting when they had the opportunity for government to government consultation that was more addressing the confidential interest. And even when you have two adjacent gotcha. nations or tribal tribes um, working with the same federal entity, having them the opportunity to have their own voice and, and consultation that wasn't disclosing information to the public was an important aspect for the tribe to have their one-on-one government relationship and then be able to coordinate and work with each other as adjacent tribes. And then how they worked with these emergent groups like the watershed or the fire safe councils. And then now that's grown in a, in a partnership with support from larger organizations like the nature conservancy, in particular the indigenous people's burning network. And then with their treks or the training exchange, having these partnerships and these forums in which whatever information the local tribe or practitioners want to share, they can do that willingly and with their consent. Um, But when there's other things, there's the policies and authorities or the laws there that are also in place to protect sensitive information or not disclose anything that may be sensitive in regards to fire effects on heritage or cultural resources. It could be sacred sites, or it could even be a certain aspect of that traditional fire knowledge that is particular to a certain ceremonial or, or, or religious function that is held by certain families or certain village within that tribal territory. Okay. So more specifically, it'll be just, you think that the, just the relationship between the tribes and the government is probably more beneficial in the end. Yeah. yeah but also, you know, there's, yeah, the thing- we have a, you know, mixed society of, of different races and ethnicities and interests and socioeconomic backgrounds and so it's coming together to also share and learn and then really learn how to live with fire and then use that in a constructive way to, to manage resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one really good point Frank made to me recently was like about 
how fire management has become so like um, kind of centralized, right? Where lots of times fires and objectives for burning and mm-hmm. fire suppression, everything is, is, you know, managed kind of from a city or like a yeah. central location where that's the total opposite of indigenous fire stewardship where, you know, it's a very decentralized structure, even sometimes down to like a family right. that, you know, burns for certain reasons and objectives in, in their area. Mm. So I think that that's one of the conflicting things that we need to work on a bit is, you know, kind of shifting a bit of power back to local yeah. areas. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. Well, it's, it, yeah, that, that, like, again, like what I said, right, I think that put, hitting home that cultural aspect of it is really important because, mm-hmm. like, that's the thing that's lost on even myself, right, yeah. not being of Indigenous descent. And so it's, I, I want to know more about it and how to integrate that part into this without mm-hmm. having severe problems right so it's interesting yeah to see that just like that local aspect would make a big difference and having it like living with it constantly and being in it right so that's cool yeah frank i'm wondering too like i think one of the really unique things about you know your area down there and your tribes is um the use of smoke for achieving certain objectives like i know most of the um people that we've talked to previously on this podcast it's it's focused you know on direct fire effects um you know usually in the understory you know so if something burns then what happens Mm -hmm. but um i know you guys down there and i think you've written on it you know uh, the smoke generated from a cultural burn is also very important so i'm just wondering if you can speak a a bit to that as well it's interesting often in sharing that cultural perspective of the benefits of smoke I've had some eyebrows raised and some other scientists or uh, there's a benefit to smoke. It's like, well, yes. And part of that teaching, again, you know, if we focus on oak woodlands and acorn management, and one of the main reasons for burning was to uh, reduce the pest, the weevil and the moth that infect acorn, direct fire can do that by burning them up in the understory. Um, but also there was this cultural perspective that having that smoke under kind of a localized inversion would help fumigate the canopy of the insects up in the trees. And so there was that one scale of that. And I'd say the more um, interesting aspect is linking the phenomena of how the wildfire smoke through cultural burning and wildfires, but also looking at more of the intentional use of fire was that burning a certain amount of an area would generate the smoke, that smoke on an inversion in our really kind of topographically steep and kind of rugged valley, um, river valleys, that that inversion reflects the sunlight, which cools the air temperature, which then that reflected sunlight also cools the river temperature, which then has benefits to our cold water species, like our salmon and the salamanders and other culturally important species in the aquatic community. And that came out of really working on wildfires and seeing this phenomena we have in, in some really um, steep river canyons and the Klamaths and other parts up on the Columbia River and other parts of the Pacific West is that when you have this inversion, that smoke is indeed cooling the river and benefiting the fish. But that was essentially a research tip off by or being you know informed by this cultural phenomena. And then when I started to look into the ethnographic information, there was accounts from back in the late 1800s for the Rogue River Indians in Southwest Oregon saying they burned the hillsides to call the salmon in. Then the Yurok huh. had a large fish weir or dam construction, and they would burn the hillsides after they constructed that to call the people together. And when I began to look at the kind of the scale of that phenomena, there was a lot of cultural knowledge that you could burn intentionally to create smoke that would benefit the fish 
at a time that was otherwise in our Mediterranean hot, dry summers with no rainfall could reduce that temperature from having it be really thermally lethal and cooling the river enough to benefit those salamanders and those salmon species. And, and we finally just That's published amazing. a paper um, with some other colleagues on looking at that. Um, everything from the mode of satellite imagery for the area of the smoke down to the air and water temperature monitoring and then showing the potential benefit to the cold water species. And that was all informed by the cultural knowledge of that practice that fire has direct and indirect benefits linking again, everything from reduce evapotranspiration that increases spring flow to then the even years after that burn for what we'd say on ecology, kind of the intermediate disturbance hypothesis of having that healthy amounts of fire to rejuvenate stream bed material for habitat and woody debris, but also maintaining the water. And I think at that other aspect, I'll kind of come back around to this, of fire is medicine and that's one of the cultural teachings, then at what scale and through what time do you look at the benefits of fire? And that was all culturally informed. And that, again, is another way of how I set up my research approach. Interesting. Yeah. That... That's very cool. Yeah. I've never heard that about the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the smoke actually having the impact that it does on the aquatic environment. That's very interesting. Yeah. I've been working with a few communities up here, Frank, that talk about the, um, you know, uh, benefit of smoke or, um, uh, sorry, of fire on fisheries. Um, but usually that has to do with, you know, just kind of clearing the rivers and the streams from overgrowth. But yeah, it'd be interesting to know, you know, if there was a smoke aspect there as well, because it's very similar terrain there with like the hills and yeah, it might even be causing those inversions too. So I'm just wondering, like, how long did your study show that you need smoke in the air for to like, you know, adequately cool the, the river? Can it be like, you know, would a day burn, like, you know, a burn one day suffice? Or do you need, you know, to have sustained smoke? The, 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 the current study, or at least the study that was published recently, really looked at more wildfire smoke. And that's when, I mean, we have okay. a lot of regional fires and atmospherically it's just dense. And so it's a little yeah. bit misleading, I think, in some ways to say, well, if you had numerous smaller scale indigenous burns that created a certain amount of smoke, and we are looking at aerosol optimal thickness as the as the metric for that. We begin to look at the the amount or the concentration of that smoke and how much it resulted in a cooling of air temperature and then subsequent water or river temperature. And so I think, you know, again, as I begin to look at some of the meteorological and the fire weather and the smoke dispersion models, that's a fascinating intersection of technology, I guess, with indigenous knowledge because there's this belief or this understanding in the cause and effect of using fire. And then now we're using scientific, really advanced technologies to show the mechanism uh, that underlies that. And so I guess back to your question, there is knowledge of burning, but I'm trying to quantify or if there's a need to begin to say, well, if it's otherwise a hot, dry summer and there's no rain in the forecast and our river water temperatures are reaching really uh, physiological stressful limits for things like the salamanders and the, and the salmon um, can fire be used in a way that would mitigate and reduce that at a local level And the evidence is there, but I think it's just changing the paradigm for, for wildland fire managers and even for scientists to think at that scale of complexity to be, wow, here's something that we learned from the local native people who have lived here for millennia who are 
salmon and acorn dependent people and kind of a cultural framing. And this is the way they see the benefits of, of smoke and the application of it. And otherwise we would think a very hot, dry time of the year. Yeah, really interesting. I yeah. I can see though, I mean, lots of the talk in Canada though lately is about, you know, the negative health impacts of smoke. Well, when we got, yeah. yeah, when we got the whole province next to us burning down every summer, it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And causing. So anyways, it, it's interesting because I mean, I think smoke's always looked at negative, but I like my personal feeling is that, you know, we're in fire prone ecosystems up here. We're always going to have smoke. It's just, you know, how much and when. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, what's, been, yeah, what's been happening up here has not been ideal <laughs> to, you know, have smoke all summer long. Well, especially when you, you go outside at two o'clock in the afternoon and it looks like it's midnight. It's yeah, just blotting out the been, sun completely, right? It's, and you're yeah. like 500 kilometers from the fire. That's yeah. been the crazy thing. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think across the West and other fire prone ecosystems on other continents where there's been suppression of fire, you have the buildup of fuels that now with the changing, you know, climatic conditions and the other environmental factors out there, we're seeing higher rates of burning, more intense fires, you know, larger fires. And that's all a symptom of not having fire as frequently as it has been there prior to the colonial fire suppression and the other policies that were suppressing and excluding fire from those ecosystems. And so we're kind of learning from that. Mm -hmm. I think it was interesting, um, Hank Lewis, who worked a lot there in Canada and with Aboriginal people in Australia, Mm -hmm. had this notion of corrective and maintenance fires and in many places we're trying to do kind of a corrective fire where we have to address the fact that fire has been absent or has missed some cycles or frequencies and we're trying to reinstate that or where we have a a wildfire like lightning ignition how do we then in an area manage that to achieve some of these other ecological or social cultural objectives but yet at the other hand understand that we have other vulnerabilities or threats and values at risk that are now, you know, newer residents in places, um, municipal watersheds for our water utilities and other things like that, that we have to kind of protect from the negative aspects of fire burning across that part of the landscape. Yeah, yeah for sure. great point. Yeah, I know I've talked to a bunch of elders up here from different nations. And one common thing that comes across, like no matter where they are, is their you know, they all want to burn and like lots of them cry when they talk about burning and bringing fire back to the landscape. But I would say that lots of them are very nervous to do it. And I think part of that is like the fear of, you know, being fined or, you know, causing an out of control fire. And then also just the fuel loading. So most of the elders say to me, like, you know, back like you were talking, Frank, when like um the like settlers first came, they were managing the forest frequently. And now we have in especially in Canada, that 80 year um overloading of forest fuels so we can't just go out and do a cultural burn (laughs) like there's gonna be heavy and so the one issue i'm dealing with in the one community is we're gonna have to go and do a bunch of like thinning Mm. in the forest before we can burn but the elders don't want us in there with equipment Mm. so they want it all hand thin because they think like they feel that the equipment will hurt the medicinal plants Mm -hmm. so i mean you know to go and hand thin the entire canadian boreal (laughs) forest is it's going to be pretty expensive. Yeah, a little bit <laughs> so, pricey, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had a question along the same lines regarding the changing landscape and how it is now in relative to pre-colonialization. Like I know I've spoken to a number of researchers here. I've told you this, Amy, about like the Mountain Legacy Project, right? Which is they're taking photos from early 1900s of 
the Rocky Mountains and taking the photos again today. And you can see the drastic landscape change in vegetation and just general you know diversity of habitat that's available out there. Um, was there a similar change in the landscape do you think uh down in the states when you know colonial colonization happened and indigenous people were taken away from their traditional territory to do the things that they would normally have done because i know here in the mountain legacy project at least they were attributing a lot of those that diversity in landscape to indigenous burning specifically right Mm -hmm. and that this wasn't something that happened because of lightning it was something that happened because they were doing it on purpose for berries or for for hunting purposes or whatever, and uh, so I just want to know if that was if it's a similar situation down there where once indigenous people were removed from that landscape to doing the things that they traditionally did, if the landscape changed dramatically and now we're just trying to catch back up to what it used to be. Yes, very much so. Uh, you, you can see it. One of the aspects I use and still use was repeat photography, but then I also cross reference that with early landscape maps. Um, there's the U.S. Geological Survey down here has some maps from the 1920s. And on those, there was vegetation mapping. And I use that as one line of evidence. There's early plat maps from some of the early um, county maps and other things that also inform where the trails were and the villages and the new homesteads. Um, cross-reference that also with early ethnographic interviews from anthropologists with tribal um, informants around the early 1900, putting all those different lines of evidence together to say, this is how the landscape's changed, but more substantiate, this is the implications of removing indigenous fire stewardship and management on this area. And so if we value aspects of that forest diversity, uh, how fire was able to function and, and, and play itself out across the landscape, particularly with intentional uses of fire, it just wasn't at the villages and along the river corridors, but showing the complexity of that network along travel route systems to other resource areas, summer camps, and then to bring that back into the discussion of, well, this is the reasons or the objectives why tribes are burning, and this is the way that we want to reinstate fire today, then we work together with those Native people and look at the potential outcomes of, of doing that. And then to talk on the point or to touch on the point of the fuel loading, it's very important in understanding that in this fire prone ecosystem, the indigenous fire stewardship helped also promote those fire adapted drought tolerant species that were more resilient to things like drought and, and fire. And so we have to look in the last century, how much fire intolerant species or the densification of trees and shrubs and brush and the fuel loading has increased. And some of that area we have, I guess, um, a higher value in our landscape planning around communities um, of doing the mechanical and manual fuels reduction that help nudge that to those more fire adapted drought tolerant species that then will at least when we reintroduce fire there through our partnerships, will have that resilience and that ability to recover. And that can, again, it gets us from that kind of corrective fire within the maintenance and then what does it look like on our maintenance regime everywhere from around our communities our villages on the river corridor even those more remote mountain settings and up in the higher mountain elevation areas or key ridge systems where we find ourselves managing wildfire or putting fire lines in that might also have conflict with certain heritage or cultural resource values if we're going to learn to live with fire on this landscape there's going to be places that we're going to have as high priority for managing and using fire on 
And so I think that's the part in the Western Klamath Restoration Partnership that I'm the coordinating scientist with working with the Karut tribe, a little bit on the Yurok tribe on the other side, the National Forest and the local community organization and other members of the public in that area. Say, you know, what are our shared values? Where do we want to do these fuel treatments? And then how do we get fire back into that environment that will achieve a range of our values and uh, help us um, successfully reach those objectives and, and what we want from our landscape, particularly with fire and fire effects. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. I wonder if along that line of thought uh, regarding like the non-Indigenous public, do you find the, I mean, you see in the media today, right? All these, all these crazy fires that are happening across North America, that a lot of fire is demonized, right? Because of the fuel loading that we have and, and just the large destructive nature of the, of the fires that have been in the last few years. Um, do you see a large reluctance from the non-Indigenous public to having more fire in the landscape? Yeah, I think it's an overall increasing. And again, having Indigenous people share the importance of fire increases our society, our public's awareness and our fire literacy and mm-hmm. and not having seen fire always as a negative consequence, but changing that perspective to being as one of renewal and essential to our local economies, essential to our livelihoods, essential to the ecosystem services like water and food and materials that are derived from our landscapes that fire is helping promote and create. And when we shift that perspective, again, that's that aspect of kind of coming from what is currently a fire adapted community where we're preparing for wildfire as kind of a negative consequence or as something that we're vulnerable and, and threatens us, but then seeing what are the aspects of the indigenous people here that are fire dependent cultures where fire is a beneficial aspect. Um, yes, it has some consequences and under certain conditions can be deadly and threatening, but how do we reduce that? And, and I think that part of that, that perspective in society, you may be a non-Indigenous person and you can say, okay, I, I want to reduce the fuel loading and the threat of fire around my home and my property. And that also can achieve improving oak woodlands or orchards for traditional foods, or it can also help promote wildlife habitat. That is a value to me as a recreational person who uses a national forest but also might be culturally important regalia species or other keystone species important to the local tribal culture. And then beginning to find alignment for our values around the benefits of fire. Yeah. That's, it just seems like a major problem, like across everywhere, right? That the educating the public on the importance of fire is, is Mm -hmm. a, is a huge challenge. Right. And I think in this situation it applies as well. Well, and I think one thing too, the Frank Frank and I are working on this article for this new encyclopedia coming out. But one point that Frank raised in there is not only for non-Indigenous people, but even Indigenous people. Like right. there's people in our nations that are now scared of fire because of that, you know, fire suppression, Smokey the Bear fire is bad, yeah. you know, that, that has kind of been pushed. So I don't know, what are you seeing down there, Frank, amongst like, you know, internal in, in your nation? Is there a lot of support um, from fire, for getting fire on the landscape, or do you kind of have people that, that are a bit worried? I, I think it's a, a full range of those that are really, we need to get fire back on here. It's essential to those that are more cautious and a little hesitant because of the smoke health concerns, or do we still have that knowledge and, and able to use fire? So you have kind of concurrently, two approaches are multiple ways of going forward is one, we have to reju- rejuvenate our traditional fire knowledge 
and as a community of indigenous people become re-familiarized with it, where often a lot of that cultural burning was considered arson or unlawfully applied and kind of being able to say, well, we can now burn, like with the training exchange or the Trex burns, burn legally in an area that reaches and, and, and it helps attain cultural objectives, but at the same time, not have that perspective of like, oh, well, it's just, you know, the, the defiance of fire use politically or against others um, and maybe that negative context. And so I think mm-hmm. down here, there's that range of, well, can you burn in a way that is good for the environment and for our culture and community? But how do we mitigate some of the, the other implications like smoke or the potential risk that a fire may get away and, and you know, threaten life or property that we wouldn't want, but that we have to accept that as one of the risks of getting fire back in the area hasn't seen it in a while. I yeah. think, again, the, the main part there is when I'm working with cultural practitioners and particularly the elders, they enrich that conversation and perspective by saying, if we want long, straight stems from this shrub for basket material, or we need this open forest habitat that has more of the lilies and the flowers and the grasses in there that's important for those wildlife and the older forest next to it, how do you convey that in a way that this is what we can have as an achievement of our fire use, but that there might be some consequences also too that we have to relearn that might be a short-term trade-off for a longer-term beneficial gain. Yeah, great point. I think one of the most frustrating things to me as in Indigenous fire stewardship is the the loss of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because lots of, especially in Canada, our Indigenous people went like Matt Carroll wrote a really great article on it from fire burners to firefighters Mm. and that was you know where we were using fire as a tool and then suddenly it was illegal and then all of a sudden people in our nations were getting employed and making careers out of fighting fire and you know stopping it so it's kind of trying to shift that perspective back and there's lots of firefighters who understand the benefit of fire I don't want to say every firefighter is Mm. like you know is suppression focused but yeah, that's kind of a, a bit of one of the challenges. But I also see it as one of the benefits because lots of those firefighters now understand fire from a Western perspective. Yeah. So if, you know, they can learn then from our elders about that indigenous perspective of fire, you know, I think they're really well grounded. Um, For sure. You know, yeah. In- well, that's what I was just going to ask. I was, I was thinking kind of the same thing. Um, like I, I, I fought wildfire a little bit when I was younger and I don't remember ever hearing, and I, I mean, I'm a forester, so I have a, 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 some a little bit of education regarding wildfire going into actual wildfire fighting, but I don't remember during members training hearing anything about indigenous fire use, really, oh, right? Yeah, probably, like that wasn't a yeah. thing that was mentioned at all. So I wonder if there could be a movement towards, obviously, you're not going to teach all these firefighters like all the important <laughs> reasons and, and yeah. you know reasons why uh, cultural burning is important, but you can... Mm-hmm do a little bit of an introductory class and be like, okay, these are the things that you guys need to be aware of because this is something that we're trying to work towards as, you know, Mm -hmm. as a nation or as a society. Right. So I wonder even that that it just exists. That it exists. (laughs) Right. Well, that's what I mean. Cause right now it's very, it's very Mm -hmm. militarized. You know what I mean? It's just like, that's the enemy, get the enemy, like go get it. Right. So I wonder if teaching firefighters that aspect of it as a tool, because I think once you start to get into the more, managerial aspect of wildfire fighting you kind of you start understanding those kind of more uh those more nuanced debates about it right mm-hmm. but just going into it it's mostly just like this is a cool fun job with where i get to fly in a helicopter and like like university yeah students. university yeah. students right that's, that's what i was doing it so 
Um, yeah, I wonder if that would make a difference. If we could teach those people, if that would help just kind of, cause they're the ones doing some of that work. Right. So at least mm-hmm. if they're aware they're, they might make different decisions. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Frank, do you have any educational programs that you use down there for educating like the general public or, you know, people going out like one really cool thing about the States is that you guys have um, like on your fires, you were talking about how you have, and I don't want to say the the term wrong, but like almost like a cultural advisor, you know, somebody who can say, you know, this is a, a special area, you know, we need to manage the fire differently in this area. Like we don't have that in Canada. We're not even, I don't think close to that point. <laughs> So, like, how do you educate, you know, firefighters and, and other people about Indigenous fire use? I, I think I've been lucky. Um, down in Tucson, Arizona, there's National Fire Resource Institute, NAFRI, and they have the higher level courses for fire managers. And I've been involved there in the RX-510, the Advanced Fire Effects course for, oh, probably 10 plus years now. And there's another course on fire ecosystem management that I've helped develop a curriculum for. So I'm able to, because of the inclusion of that multi-agency, multi-department training facility, come lecture um, just about every year. And sometimes now some of those courses are every two years. So I can reach national scale fire managers, but then also I think through my work at the local level and helping share that example. So in fire management today, which is the, the US kind of a fire managers publication, put out by the Forest Service and, and other agencies. I wrote an article in there uh, just describing, here's this new framework for a fire management agreement between this national forest and this local tribe that provided for a tribal representative who works directly with the incident management team. And then you had the heritage consultants who could be level um, one, like you know, elders and practitioners who might not be out on the fire. Then those other ones that are essentially cultural resource specialists um, who work directly with archaeologists and the fire observers and the, and the suppression crews to then identify, you know, what areas of the landscape are more sensitive or have higher level concern. Um, we talk about the, the mitigation or minimum impact suppression tactics that can be used not only in wilderness areas, but also around areas that have um, heritage or cultural resources. And so for me, it's, it's across that gradient from a local level, helping inform others when I hear from other tribes saying, we wish we had something like this to work with our national forest sharing that example and then using that as part of my case study when I lecture at the National Training Institute. Awesome. So those, can you talk just because I think it might be interesting, especially for our audience up here in Canada, about the cultural resource advisor positions on the fire. So um, is that like, first of all, how did that come about? Has it always been, you know, that you had tribal people advising, like, you know, the fire management team? Um, and then, you know, how do they work in, in an active fire setting? Well, particularly here in the Klamath River, the, the Karut tribe, the Yurok, and then the Hoopa Indian Valley Reservation there, they each have their own tribal government to forest service, national forest agreements. Um, and so when a fire, wildfire does occur in one of those tribal ancestral territories or area of mutual interest where there's adjoining tribes, uh, territorial boundaries, say like in the wilderness, um, that agreement sets into place where you have a tribal representative who works directly with the incident management team, who's there kind of at the planning tent um, at fire camp. And then it provides those heritage consultant levels where you have fire, quali- fire line qualified personnel who are tribal employees who work directly there with um, the divisions and 
the other operational aspects of fire personnel. And then there's even more parts of that now due to Bureau of Indian Affairs and cost reimbursement and working with the tribe to have the tribal fire crews there. That can be anything from a type one crew, which is more of your well-trained firefighters to a type two team, um, to even having fallers, the chippers, um, water tenders, all the other fire equipment and resources that are now attached to that fire. And so having the local agency representative, like the four supervisor, work with the incident commander or that incident management team, and then having that designated tribal representative, that facilitates that consultation requirement um, and helps support that, but it also really facilitates the consultation, the communication, and the coordination about what kind of fire tactics are going to be used, how they're going to be employed or um, carried out on the ground, and then having that filter and that feedback system about what would be kind of an appropriate level of action or not from the tribe's perspective and interest in working with that incident management team as well as the local agency. And then that trickles down through the chain of command to all those resources uh, on the ground. And so within what we call the wildfires here, the incident action plan often stated right at the beginning is, you know, one of the objectives for management is to protect natural and cultural resources and to work closely with local cooperating partners and the tribe. And that framework right there um, helps set that foundation for that consultation and communication and coordination at various levels during the fire incident. And for a lot of fire incident management teams that weren't from Northern California or this area familiar with that, that was a big educational process. Like, why is this tribal representative in here with the incident command team? They're not part of our structure. Well, actually they are. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and, and what's kind of, you know, what level of um, co-management or cooperative agreements around what's going to happen with how the fire is being managed and what the tactics are being employed and taken and where and why. When that's also has that tribal inclusion, there's often more satisfactory outcomes and less tension and less conflict. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. It's just really interesting. I mean, in Canada, I don't even think we're thinking that that far ahead. Like, I know that the agencies want to um, manage for cultural, and but there's a bit of a conflict, too, right now about, you know, like you were talking about before, who shares what with, you know, the, the colonizer, basically. And lots of uh, communities are very nervous uh, to share those type of things. But Frank, I was just wondering, too, so I wanted to get in, you know, I know you talk a lot about, and I'm totally, I'm drawing a total blank on... <laughs> the name I was telling Matt, but it's, is it agroforestry horticulture? I'm totally I, saying I it say wrong. Agroforestry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a, a bit about that and just, you know, how the forest can um, be used basically to, to sustain life? Like, lot, lots of people look at the forest as, you know, like a place to go for recreation or on a hike, but not a place, you know, that can actually... Um, yeah, so sustain a community or a nation. Mm-hmm. And I'll link that back around to the active fire management agreements and what's going on, on the ground for the kind of joint prescribed burns between the agency and the organizations and the tribes. So when I Great. frame it as an agroforestry perspective, I'll use the oaks as an example. A lot of people say, oh, in California, oak woodlands are important and acorns were a food crop uh, important to the tribe and wildlife. Well, if you say that's an oak woodland, that's one perspective and you think it's natural. If you say that's a orchard that has hundreds, if not thousands of years of tending and stewardship, it changes the perspective. I even think on my own property and working with my adjacent landowner, 
our big flat there um, has big legacy, hundreds of year old oaks. And when I began to talk to my neighbor and say, I'd like to work with the fire safe council and the tribe to do some prescribed burning, but we have to do some fuels reduction work. And I called it an orchard. He's like, well, what do you mean by orchard? I was like, well, there's indications in the structure and the composition of why these trees are here. That's the legacy of that indigenous stewardship. But there's also a range of other artifacts from fire crack rock for heating and cooking acorn soup to the food processing tools and other things that we see that indicate that this has been a long term established, you know, what we call it like a coupled human and natural system around this. And it's just not the oaks, but then you have the shrubs that are the, the berry plants, the basket plants. And then you have that understory. If it's not choked out with dense trees and heavy surface and ladder fuels, you would have more of a rich understory. That would be your additional foods, your medicines and materials and providing that optimal uh, desired wildlife habitat. And so for me, the agroforestry part of framing that is really getting the public to see that a lot of the old growth or the structure of these wide open trees or big pines um, are, in fact, a legacy of indigenous stewardship, particularly for their values around food security and other resources that was promoted by a very specific fire use to promote that condition. And as we revive um, the cultural practices and we think about this through the agroforestry lens, you look at the functionality of, again, the forest, you have the overstory of the dominant trees that can provide one form of service. Maybe it's going to be foods. Um, maybe it's going to be nuts and things like that and acorns. Then you have your understory or your midstory that may have a different type of species. Some might be more fire adapted versus others. Um, and then you have your, that whole scale. So by, I think, articulating and breaking that down to say, as we do our landscape restoration strategies and we have these prescriptions informed by indigenous uses of the forest, we can see how we can get these desired species in the composition of our trees and the shrubs and the understory herbaceous material that provide a range of, of resource uses and potential. And then fire is the most energetic way that we can manage that um, to maintain that condition. And that's how, that was the model that was here that otherwise a lot of ecologists or community might assume as being a naturally diverse and rich forest um, that's had some effects because of fire exclusion. But if we just get fire back in there, it'll recover it. It's like, well, no, a uh, high intense fire now would actually burn up those legacy oaks or pines and they're vulnerable. So we need to do things that mitigate or reduce the risk of them when we reintroduce fire. And then again, once we get to that maintenance burning, those will have more resilience and more diversity that achieve some of our recreation or other public values, but also meet the needs of the tribal community who are really relying upon those for their various foods and materials. Yeah, that's awesome. Great explanation, Frank. You're doing a lot of stuff down there. Do you ever get exhausted? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like, yeah, you're involved in a lot of things. I'm, I'm an ambitious person. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I think at a very personal cultural level, the elders that mm -hmm. took time to teach me something, show me something. They were their gift of knowledge. I have a responsibility for that knowledge. And yeah. I say they loved me because they cared for me enough to teach me something and help me take a look at it, help me teach me how to gather it, how to use it, teach me the benefits of how fire relates to that. And now to honor that knowledge and that responsibility, 
I try to carry that out professionally and also culturally and mm-hmm. and work, I guess, as a scientist, but also at home, even down to my own subsistence practices with my family and, and my cousins and other other people um, is to keep it living. And, and a fire mm-hmm. is so essential part of that. And that's been absent. How do we bring that back? So I do keep pretty active as a scientist. Um, I do forest thinning on my own property and, and use that as kind of a case study example for local field tours and, and really try to be inspiration to other families and say, you know, it's, it's going to be hard, it's tough, but you can work at this. And here's these resources that we have through these government programs, through the partnerships between the tribes and the community organization and the agencies. And we can each do our own part to increase our food security, to promote the diversity in the condition of the forest that makes us safer from detrimental fire, but allows us also to get fire in there and help promote that family-based burning that the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network and other groups like the Europe Cultural Fire Management Council and working with the Nature Conservancy on the treks and those other types of burns are doing that. Um, another aspect of that fire management agreement I talked about earlier was on the side of wildfire, but now the Karuk tribe and the Forest Service, the Six Rivers National Forest are using that to do cultural prescribed burns and some of those units have been identified by the tribe and cultural practitioners um, and saying, hey, we want fire back in here. And now you have the tribal fire crew and you have the Forest Service crew working hand in hand on the line to get that cultural burn conducted. And then we have the cultural uh, practitioners coming in, whether they're working with the tribe's food crew or there's families going out there watching the burn, being able to have opportunities at the more family-based burn, family-based burning through treks to burn on their own properties, and then go out there and, and teach the younger generation. And I think that's the strongest thing is that you have an elder who has this wealth of knowledge and you have younger people who are hungry for knowledge and want to connect to their cultural practices, to their place, and fire is helping renew that and rejuvenate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, it is. Yeah, and I mean, the work you're doing, Frank, I think you're taking your responsibility down there very seriously. I'm super proud of, of everything that you're doing. I mean, not only on your local scale, but I think often you underestimate like your international uh, influence as well. Well, thank you. I just, you know, again, uh, I, I want to try to get it right at home and I'm with my own acorn trees and my own berry plants and uh, share the wealth. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Thanks a lot for coming on today, Frank. This is great. Uh, yeah, the wealth of information that you have, I'm sure we could go on for another couple hours. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So thanks a lot for coming on. We appreciate it. I wish you luck in uh, you know applying some of these strategies that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Frank. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, and um, I only know as much that people shared with me. So I'm grateful to the elders and the tribes I work with, the community and tribal organizations, and and other colleagues like yourself. So thank you. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. I know Amy and I both really enjoy these conversations. They're always incredible. Thanks again to Frank for coming on. We appreciate you taking the time to have these important conversations. This podcast was produced by me, Matthew Kristoff, and I have an environmental sciences podcast called Your Forest. And if you like good fire, you'll definitely like Your Forest. Please check it out on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. And uh, I hope you guys like it. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks a lot for listening. Take it easy.